You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Welcome to SpyCast, the official podcast of the International Spy Museum. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, we explore some aspect of the past, present, or future of intelligence and espionage. Please consider leaving us a five-star review so other listeners can find us. Coming up next on SpyCast. The fact is that in many ways, the Second World War and the cooperation, the engagement at the different levels with the British established military establishment, intelligence establishment, as you said, you know, gave us our chops, gave us not gave hands-on experience, very, very important experience with British resources. Spycast is excited to announce its first annual month-long deep dive on a single country. This year marks the 75th anniversary of the State of Israel and the 50th anniversary of the trauma of the Yom Kippur War. It is a fitting subject then for the inaugural five-episode special. Week one provides a crash course in Israeli intelligence, Mossad, Shin Bet, Amman, and how these agencies came into being. It also looks at the period before the creation of the state, namely World War I and World War II. Week two features a former Israeli national security advisor talking about intelligence and policy at the top. Week three looks at the intelligence failure that was the Yom Kippur War, which threatened to wipe Israel off the map. Week four looks at the legendary Israeli intelligence gathering Special Forces Commander Unit, Sayeret Matkal. And the final week, we finish off with a double bill that includes the former head of counterterrorism for the Israeli Defense Forces and a former head of intelligence for the Mossad. This week's guest is Erez Meisel. He was formerly a brigadier general in the IDF and head of its International Cooperation Unit. He researches military and intelligence history and was a research fellow at the Alma Research and Education Centre. In this episode, Erez and I discuss the narrative arc of Israeli intelligence, the structure of Israeli intelligence, peace and war in the region, and intelligence among the Yeshuv, that is, the Jewish communities who lived in Palestine before the establishment of the state in 1948. The original podcast on intelligence since 2006, we are SpyCast. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Okay, well, thanks ever so much for joining me. And I'm really excited because this is the first in a five-week special where we do a deep dive into Israeli intelligence. But because we're doing a deep dive, I feel like we also need breadth. So I'm hoping that you can help our listeners understand the narrative arc of Israeli intelligence 
uh, the roots of it, how it came into being, the evolution of it and where we are now. So thanks ever so much for uh, helping me out with this, uh, you know, rather challenging well, It's task. my pleasure and thanks for the invitation. I'm really glad to be here today. So thank you very much. Thank you. So I was just wondering, could you just start off by telling our listeners a little bit more about the foundations of Israeli intelligence. So we can we can go back way, way, way back, but I'm thinking in the period, the early part of the 20th century, leading up to the declaration of uh, independence in 1948. So what are some of the things that are going on uh, pre-World War II that would feed into Israeli intelligence? Okay, I'm, I'm going to go a little bit further back. Um, Pre-World War uh, II is, I'll start, I'll pick a year, 1909. Uh, in the intelligence world, 1909, whenever you check up on intelligence history, you'll see that's the, the date that the Secret Intelligence Service picked for their uh, foundation, I think. It's even on their website. Uh, but when you look at uh, what's happening in uh, that pre-mandatory Palestine, we're talking about Palestine under the Ottoman uh, Empire control up until uh, 1917, so it's 1909. And uh, Jewish immigration, uh, the Zionist uh, movement is now just over about 30 years. And there are settlements all over Palestine, not, not very many, but there are quite a few settlements, mainly in the north, in the south, uh, up until around but where Tel Aviv is today, a little bit further south. And they are in need of protection uh, against uh, criminal activity, mainly criminal, brigadage and, you know, Bedouin raids and things like that. And they, up, and, up until then, they've, they basically paid protection to people to protect them from uh, local uh, tribes, mainly Bedouin tribes that have for years controlled uh, the access. And in 1909, without getting into the, the, you know, the Jewish history of immigration and where they're coming from, there are younger men, younger women, uh, many of them from, coming from uh, Imperial Russia, and they've suffered persecution. And they are, they, they've come now to be, they're basically pioneers. And uh, one of the things, one of their main tenets is, you know, is Jewish work, Jewish independence. Uh, the ability to protect yourself is one of those things. And, and one of the first organizations, uh, not, not an economic one, not a capitalistic one, more like semi-revolutionary, but definitely underground, but it becomes very quickly an economic uh, venture, is a group of men and one or two women that start uh, I would call it like a god company. They call it Hashomer, which is the watchman. And they get contracts to protect the Jewish settlements. And uh, they dress up as Arab Bedouin because they want to merge. They learn to speak Arabic. And they basically protect these settlements through good neighborness. They may make contact with the people around them and they understand their issues. They assist. The most important thing for them is not to create any harm, is not to hurt people, not to wound people, not no violence, actually. And the biggest, the biggest thing out there is about deterrence and being present. When you spoke about the ARC, it's the first time I'm going to mention an acronym, which they didn't use this acronym, but we look at it today. They were very effective for three reasons. First, they had very good access. They were always outside on the ground. They used to report to each other. And they were very credible. They were very good at their jobs. And this is the very first time that we see a very early version of Jewish, um, I would call it human terrain intelligence, 
uh, all over Palestine, mainly from the south to the north. And it's basically leveraging good knowledge and presence to create security for the, for the, the Jewish uh, settlers. This is the first time in 1909. Um, the next important date is, of course, the First World War. Uh, during the First World War, uh, Palestine, the Middle East as a whole, is very important uh, to the European empires. Specifically, of course, the British Empire, but also the French Empire. And everybody knows about the agreements made, uh, Sykes-Picot and such things. But at the Palestinian level, uh, this is a ground, this is a battleground between uh, Egypt, which is basically controlled by the British Empire and the Suez Canal, which is very important, of course. And uh, the north towards Turkey and, uh, you know, the Dardanelles and uh, Gallipoli and places like that. In between, you have this piece of very important land as always been very important, which is called Palestine. And uh, in Palestine, you have on the one hand, you have these, these watchmen that by 1909, 1914 are basically in trouble economically, but they're still there. And the question now that the, the Jewish settlers are asking is during this First World War, which is then is the Great War, they don't know it's going to, there's going to be a second one, of course, is, you know, who do we owe allegiance? Who, who should we help? Who should we, you know, who should we support? And the Jews all over the world, of course, and there's a big question. But uh, the question is, do we support the current leadership in Palestine, which are the Ottomans, or should we look for uh, an external sponsor, in this case, you know, the British or the French? Of course, the Americans are slightly less relevant at this time. And some do join the Ottoman army. Uh, they are conscripted and some actually volunteer. But a small group in a settlement not far from Haifa, in a place called Zichron Yaakov, family, uh, Aronson family, um, quite well off, uh, we could call them uh, landowners, agricultural people. They have, uh, they have uh, quite a lot of property in that area. And the eldest son, Aaron, He's an agronom agronomist. He's a leading, in fact, worldwide leader in research into agriculture. He finds very important finds. And the Ottomans also know that they basically need him because there's a terrible locust uh, plague during this time. So he can travel freely around the area. And he decides, he thinks that he, he makes a decision and he convinces his brothers and his sister, a woman. He has two sisters, Sarah and Rifka, the older one is Sarah. And he, he convinces them that they need to make contact with the British in Egypt and supply them with information because they think that this is the best way to help the British basically capture, if you want, free Palestine from Ottoman rule. And politically, diplomatically, he sees that if he can help them, they will be able to maybe gain something that in the future. And he creates a secret organization, the first organized intelligence organization that we know of in modern day uh, in our era. It's called NILI. In Hebrew, it's Netzach Yisrael or Shakir, which is basically about uh, persistence and the fact that Israel will survive and Israel will succeed. And he makes contact with uh, the British in Cairo. It takes some time. It's a very interesting story. We don't have time to talk about it, but there are, there are many times they have to cross, they cross the Sinai Desert and unsuccessfully, successfully, but eventually they're able to create a link, a maritime link, with a boat leaving from Alexandria, the harbor in, in Egypt, all the way to a harbor at Leet. Uh, it's not really a harbor, it's more like a, a place where a ship can, can wait. 
And a man named Nishansky swims out to them with the information, and he comes back with money and sort of things like that. And this uh, this organization supplies the the British with uh, very important information, which they use. And they incorporate in their reports. Why am I telling this story? Because it's the first time that the Jews basically, since the biblical times, you could say, or since the Roman times, the late Roman times, that a military intelligence or a diplomatic intelligence apparatus is put up in Palestine. It makes contact with a superpower, the British, and it assists them in basically capturing uh, then Palestine from the Ottomans. Initially, they do help. Some of the information assists the initial campaign in 1917. And then one of the sons, even, and some others escort, they, they act as scouts for Allenby, for General Allenby, the British commander capturing uh, Palestine in 1918, they actually assist him all the way to Damascus. So that's the first time. So 1914, 1915, 16, and 17 to 18 is the first time we see that. Just briefly, Erez, I just want to uh, help our listeners catch up uh, just with a few of the terms. So uh, you mentioned Allenby there and the one of the major bridges between Israel and Jordan is the Allenby yes. Bridge. General Allenby was the commander, not the first commander, but the most successful commander of British military forces based in, in Egypt. He was successful in, not the first, but the the most the successful, the second battle of Beersheba, using deception, by the way. Uh, there's a very good story they call the Havasak uh, Deception, where they, they basically try and fool, and apparently quite successfully fool the Ottomans to look the other way. And he's able to capture Gaza, uh, which is just uh, just west of of, um, of Beersheba. And then he, he, he's able to penetrate all the way to Jerusalem. So he, he's basically able to deliver Jerusalem by Christmas uh, to Lloyd George, to the, the Prime Minister, which is what he wanted. And he wanted some good news for 1918. So Christmas 1917 is Jerusalem we have. It's a very famous picture when he enters on foot into the old city in 1917 by Jaffa Gate and he's, he's flanked by many. And one of the people that are in that picture, of course, is T. Lawrence as well. So he's very important. Mm-hmm. And Haifa, which you mentioned, this is a city on the Mediterranean coast in northern Israel. Correct. So Haifa is, uh, is, a very, is the northern port uh, of Israel. Uh, it's, uh, it's a natural bay. Uh, up until then, the ports in northern uh, Palestine had been Acre or Akko uh, for, for years, for, for hundreds of years, uh, pre-Roman, of course, during Crusader times as well. Even Napoleon uh, had a slight little uh, escapade there. Uh, but Haifa had been developed, had started, at this time, Haifa was still quite a small port. It wasn't a very big port. Uh, but uh, subsequent to the British uh, mandate uh, from the late twenties, uh, it's been, been highly developed, and from the late thirties, that is the central. That was the central port for Palestine, and around it, uh, both during the thirties and forties, during the Second World War as well. But even before that, the British invested highly in, in different super, in different infrastructure there. A lot of it, by the way, to deal with um, um, oil and gas, because it, that was the, basically the outlet from the Persian Gulf. Uh, which is in the east, and the western outlet in the Mediterranean would have been Haifa. So Haifa was very important and also played a very big part during the Second World War. And the Sykes-Picot, which you refer to, this is a a British and a French diplomat who give their names to a treaty that basically divides what is now Iraq, uh, Syria, and this region here, and and the not-too-distant past. ISIS made a big deal of 
saying that they had symbolically taken away the Sykes-Picot line, um, but that's what Sykes-Picot is. Is that a correct way to frame correct. it? Correct. The idea was basically how would they divide up the Middle East, make sure that each uh, empire would get their interests, and a line was drawn. A line was drawn basically north of Palestine all the way towards uh, Karakuk in Iraq, and um, that was the basis for the post-war uh, a drawing of boundaries between the different countries, which basically 1920 on after San Remo, that was the conference held in San Remo, would say, this is Palestine, this is Lebanon, this is Syria, this is Iraq, and subsequently also the Kingdom of Jordan, which was Trans-Jordan of Palestine. Hmm. And just again, just before we move on, uh, so you mentioned the Ottomans. So the Ottomans are there for 400 years controlling Palestine and much broader swathes of territory in Northern Africa and the Middle East. But uh, it's the Ottomans, they're there for 400 years. And in the grand scheme of things, the British are not there for that long, 1918 until 1948. So 30 years, but they are 30 pivotal years. And during this period as well, you mentioned lots of settlers coming from uh, Russia or the Russian Empire. And and we're talking about pogroms. We're talking about the uh, Alaya, the, the uh, ascent of... Uh, Jewish people back to Israel and you know this this could be a 10 part podcast but um, Zionism there's there's certain ways in which that feeds into and comes out of uh, the growth of nationalism and and Europe and so forth but uh, yeah I just I just want to give our listeners some clarification on these terms so that they're they're we're not leaving anyone sure, behind. Sure. Look I think that when you look at the grand scheme of things from uh approximately, let's say, from 1918 to 1948, that's 30 years of, of British of British rule in Palestine, of which less than that was basically the mandate, because the mandate comes much later, it comes a few years later. But those 30 years are, are extremely important years for Israeli for the Israeli intelligence community for many reasons, which I, if you want to, I'll get on to that. But the big thing is that coming out of the First World War, um, there are people in Palestine Jewish people that have already found themselves doing intelligence uh, things. These people have uh, been involved, have experience in clandestine work. They have communications using ships, using pigeons. That was that was the way the the network, Neely network, was basically found out. Uh, pigeon picked the wrong place to land, and they also know about reports and know about you know operation intelligence and scouting. So. Come 1918, when the British arrived, they also have very good contacts on the British side with General Allenby and others. And they feel uh, that they are ready to, you know, I would say not negotiate, but definitely engage about, you know, moving ahead on creating some sort of Jewish state in Palestine. So that's the important thing about the First World War and that intelligence experience. We'll move on straight after this, but in the First World War, there's no state of Israel yet, but it's not quite as simple as all Jewish people choose one side that, you know, the central powers are the allies. Um, there's Jews that fight for Germany. There's Jews that fight for Britain. And, uh, there's Jews that fight for the Ottoman Empire. There's Jews that are affiliated with the British, like the the Aronsons and uh, Neely. Um, it's a complicated picture. No, you're very right there. But the, the most important thing about the First World War experience is that there suddenly is intelligence capability, although it's nascent, it's very new, it's very small, it's very secret, but it has some success. And there's definitely a very good example of it can be done. 
and that's inspiration and that's capability and that brings us on to you know the 30s Mm -hmm. let's go on to the 30s then let's discuss the 30s and the and the lead up to the second world war and the early period of the second world war so help our listeners understand that in terms of the development and evolution of of israeli intelligence as we know it today so i would say that from 1909 to probably the early 80s of the you know of the 20th century the biggest threat is survival you know this this fear that somebody some Arab country or Arab uh, formation would, would come and do something. And we have to protect ourselves from that. This changes in the 80s because of the peace agreements with Egypt and then with, with Jordan. So that's, we'll get to that in a second. But when we talk about the 30s and the, the Second World War, this question of survival, of national survival, of personal survival is very, very important. Uh, I would say you know, the Yom Kippur makes that a trauma, even of this question of national survival, which we'll probably get to at the end of this. So... In the 30s, you know, the world is changing. Some would say it's like today, you know, we have these, you know, we have these massive political popular changes all over the place. And, and one of the biggest changes, of course, is in Europe, uh, you know, with, with, with fascism. So you have it in Italy, you have it in, you have it in Germany, you have it in other places as well. But these are the, you know, the very important places for, for Jews because they were living there. As you mentioned, during the First World War, you know, Jews fought on both sides and they fought for Germany as well. And with the rise of Hitler in the 30s, this changes, this changes uh, dramatically. Uh, so not only does it create movement of Jews to different places, many coming to Palestine, many German Jews coming to Palestine, which they bring not only themselves, but what they have, which is knowledge and capability and, of course, resources, which is very, very important for the Second World War and also for the War of Independence in 1948-49 and later into Israel because they bring all this immense knowledge and ability. But they bring something else as well, which is, you know, is, is, is Europe in many ways because up until now, a lot of, a lot of the Palestinian, uh, I would say, uh, nomenclature are more Eastern, Eastern Jews from Russia and Poland and such like. And the 30s sees also a massive change in the Middle East because of the rise of nationalism, not only in Europe, but also, of course, you know, it emerges all over. So you have places like in Iraq and you have like in Syria and Lebanon as well. And, and also you have nationalism, of course, in Egypt. And everybody's dealing with this issue. And, you know, the Jews in Palestine, which is, we, it's then called the Yeshuv, the, the settlement. And they are now dealing with this issue of, on the one hand, how do we make, make sure the Jews are protected in Palestine, in the mandatory Palestine, because the British are not in control. On the other hand, how do we accept the immigrants, make sure they come and are protected and can look after themselves? And of course, in this time, the Arabs don't, are not interested in allowing immigration, Jewish immigration to Palestine. This clash, basically, between the quest for security, for survival, uh, leaving Europe and going to Palestine on the one hand, and bas basically safeguarding the current Jewish uh, settlement, the Yeshuv, in Palestine is what basically influences the 30s up until the Second World War. Uh, to just go back one, one second, is in 1920, the, the Jewish, uh, it's very complicated, but we'll call it the Labour Party, they, they decide and make a very important decision and they create the Haganah. And the Haganah is the initial underground military arm, if you want, militia, uh, that basically is focus on protecting the settlements, much like the Shomer used to do, the Watchmen, but now it's at a, a very national, the whole country. It's mainly volunteers, so they are trained, you know, 
Some of them were actually working for the Palestinian police as policemen or gafirim. And some of them, of course, are, you know, are volunteering, and that's now they're not in uniform, of course. So most of them, of course, are, very, are civilian protection, and they're getting very uh, rudimentary paramilitary training. And in the 30s, now they're dealing with what we would call the Second Arab Revolt or Rebellion, but this one now is in Palestine. And that starts in 1933 with the um, attacks around Haifa. Uh, the British understand this. And they are, they decide to accept Jewish assistance because the Jews have, as I, as I mentioned before, they have access. They're able to report and they have credibility. And with the, with the assistance of the Jewish, I would say, grassroots intelligence capability, because they live there, they're out there, they're able to basically uh, crush this initial uh, Arab uh, terrorism of 1933. And that brings us to the Arab Revolt of 1936, which, of course, is influenced by fascism and other things, but nationalism as a rule, because the Arabs want something that everybody else has, so they want it as well, including in Palestine. Uh, as a result of that, the Haganah uh, prepares itself to protect not only the settlements themselves, but also something called going out of the stockade or going out of the boundary. It starts with, um, with Jewish commanders, like Yitzhak Sadeh, this is a man that in the future would be a commander of an armored battalion, uh, armored brigade in the War of Independence, but he is a, he's a leading light, he's a leader and a commander, and he will also be very, very important in uh, establishing the Palmach, which we'll get to in a second. But uh, they are also assisted by the British military, and probably one of the more well-known figures is Captain Ord Wingate, who is uh, sent to Palestine as an intelligence officer. He's artillery, but he's sent as intelligence officer. And one of his jobs is to protect the oil pipeline from Iraq to Haifa. And he understands that if he, can, if he uses the Jewish settlements that are out there as bases, they not only have access, but they also have very good ground knowledge, human terrain, but also physical knowledge of the area. And he can recruit and train, and they will prove, they will prove to be very good uh, counter-terrorist squads. And he starts something that is called the Special Night Squads, and he bases them in uh, that in the area to protect the pipeline. But he also starts preemptive raids into the areas. So that's 1936 to 1938. And these Special Night Squads, uh, there's some quite there's people that go on to become quite famous in uh, Israel that are part of them. People like Moshe Dayan and and other future leaders. Correct. So, Ord Wingate. You know, we have a, we have an institute, a physical training institute, not near, very close to to Tel Aviv, not so far from a place called Netanya on the coast. And that's where I did some of my physical training during uh, during my service. And Lord Wingate, he was a he was a you know, as a powerful powerful person, you know, and um, he uh, he basically trained a big personality. personality would be a better word, yes. <laughs> yeah, a big personality. Yeah. <laughs> very 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 unique personality, apparently. <laughs> um, he was also a very, very, uh, very smart tactician, very unique tactician as well, and he, and he was a big believer in what we would call today unconventional warfare. So he, he not only led, but he also taught. There are some very interesting. Even today, you can find his lessons in, in the archives, and he taught these men. It was a mixed group of British officers, uh, British non-commissioned officers, and uh, Jewish uh, non-commissioned officers, and soldiers, British and Jewish, and he, he basically he created these squads, these teams, 
They would uh, not. They would do collection during the day, and they were also using, of course, uh, human, you know, human collection amongst the Arabs mainly. Uh, and they would did a lot of uh, routine collection, a lot of routine p- patrolling, and that then allowed them to do these preemptive and these preventive raids. And a lot of deception, a lot of tactical deception, and of course, movement at night. And uh, one of the one of the office, one of the non commissioned officers was Moshe Dayan. Uh, others as well who would go on to do lead uh, important parts of the Israeli military up until I would say the late eighties and the IDF. Many of them as reserve officers, of course. And Moshe Dayan, he's uh, he becomes a famous general, especially in the nineteen sixty seven war, and then he's the defense minister in the in the Yom Kippur War in nineteen seventy three. Correct, correct. So he that's, that allows me then to move on to the next important date, which is of course the Second World War. In this episode, we have heard about Ord Wingate. To help you digest the episode, here's a brief primer on who he was and why he mattered. Wingate was what Churchill would call a corkscrew thinker, or in the words of Churchill's personal physician, Wingate seems to me hardly sane. In medical jargon, a borderline case, close quotes. Let's just say he lived a very full and very colourful life. The fact that both the first president of Israel, Chaim Weissman, and the emperor of Ethiopia, Haile Selassie, were godfathers to his son suggests nothing less. He was a British military officer who was known for his unconventional and innovative approach to warfare in a variety of theatres. In Ethiopia, he was known as the founder and leader of Gideon Force, a small elite force who operated in East Africa against Italian occupation. In Burma, he was known as the leader of the Chindits, a special operations group that would conduct long-range penetrations behind Japanese lines cut off from regular lines of supply and communication. In Israel, meanwhile, he was known for training Jewish self-defense forces and for being a staunch advocate of the Zionist cause. He is seen by many as the father of the IDF, a legacy that lasts to this day. He drilled into his men attack over defense. The concept was new to us, wrote Moshe Dayan, who would go on to be a key figure in the Israeli Defence Forces before becoming Minister of Defence. In Israel, many streets, squares and public buildings are named after Wingate, who died in a plane crash in Burma during the latter stages of the Second World War. We'll be right back after this. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then, you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills, all using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire.
And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and Zero Trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their SASE journey, visit netskope.com. Just before we move on to the War of Independence, can you just tell the listeners a little bit more about, you mentioned Haganah, you mentioned uh, Palmach, the Special Night Squads. Just to help our listeners, just a couple of sentences on each one of them and then also maybe speak about the Stern Gang and Irgun. Right. So, so, as I said, 1920, in response to this, this another violence, another text in the 1920s and 1921, so the Haganah is organized. It's paramilitary underground. It's basically wherever there are Jewish settlements or Jewish uh, people living, it's organized into, you could say cells, local cells. It's very interesting how they were organized because it's uh, at the national level, there's like a command uh, and it's run basically by, by, you know, by the political leadership. It's very, 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 very well organized and very well, um, I would say managed. And at the tactical level, it's divided into different regions and each region into different, uh, we say, sub-regions, and then the settlements themselves, the communities, which there's a command there, and he trains the people, and, of course, there's national training as well. As I mentioned, the Special Night Squads, which Wingate basically organizes, but it's based on something that the Haganah already had, which are like mobile units. And the Haganah is also very, very instrumental in creating new settlements to basically not only define the borders of the future state of Israel, but also to protect, to create strategic or tactical depth. Intelligence is starting to organize itself as a more national level. Up until then, it was very local, based on watchmen or people who work, but now it becomes much more important. They're basically organized, uh, I would say, what a national, a regional intelligence capability, which is called the Shai which in Hebrew is Shirut Yediot, which is basically translated into uh, the information uh, service. And this, this, this will be the basis for the Israeli defense intelligence, which will start basically 1948. In parallel, uh, due to, as you mentioned before, there are different uh, opinions, you know, of what the Jewish state should be uh, in a very, very political and ideological, and people are very strong in their beliefs. And this, this leads to a split in Haganah. The first split is in the 1931, which leads to some members leaving the Haganah and starting something which is in English known as the Irgun, but uh, in Hebrew it's the Etzel, which is the Irgun Tzvailomi, uh, which is the national uh, uh, military uh, organization. Uh, this will be led by different men, but the most famous one will be the future Prime Minister of Israel, Menachem Begin. Uh, he will arrive in Palestine uh, in, during the Second World War. Uh, and they, they also have a intelligence capability, not as organized. They are much smaller. They are much more clandestine. They are not uh, as well uh, organized and not, don't have the same signature or support amongst uh, all the Jews, never mind the British mandate, which saw them as a terrorist organization. The second breakaway will be uh, 
later with the Lehi, with, this, with what is known as the Stern game, Avraham Stern, who, who would leave Etzel and start his own organization, is even more, uh, you could say right-wing in many ways, but he's also much more activistic, and he sees the British as his enemy, and he's even, there are even documentation of, of his, I would say, his engagement, or potential engagement with, you know, with fascist Italy, and even with Germany uh, during the during the up, up until during the war, because he sees them as someone who may support them in uh, in ousting and getting the, the British out of mandatory Palestine, he is basically hunted down and assassinated by British police uh, during the the beginning of the, the Second World War, and he's killed in Tel Aviv. So you have basically three uh, paramilitary uh, Jewish organizations organized. Uh, one is national, regional Haganah, most in, most. I would say most organized and widely accepted, uh, supported not only by the Labour Party but also by most, uh, most uh, I would say most of the Jews living then in, in Palestine and and also I would say global diaspora. You have a slightly smaller group uh, in the thousands, not the tens of thousands, like the Haganah, the Etzel, and they have a smaller intelligence capability called Delek, which is fuel, which they start during the Second World War, about 1944. Up until then, it's very haphazard, the intelligence capability. And then you have uh, the Lehi, which is much smaller. It's a couple of hundred to a few thousand. And most of them are just uh, very, very, very um, tacit supporters. And this brings us to the Second World War. And ju- just briefly, how are they all different from Palmach? Just to underline sure. it for our so, listeners. So basically, these are the three main formations or organizations that uh, are, are involved in Jewish defense and proactive defense, what you would call to the active defense or offensive operations, or they are very limited. The Haganah, the bigger one, then the Etzel, much, much smaller, and of course the Lehi. The Palmach is basically uh, initiated only in 1941. Whereas the Haganah is starting in 1920, uh, the Etzel in the 1931, and the Lehi uh, very, very late. Uh, the date, if you want, is, I mean, it's really late. We're talking about uh, August 1940, which is basically during the war already. And so they are breakaway. They are the final breakaway. The Palmach only starts in 1941. And in many ways, the Palmach is established because of British support. So... The Second World War, of course, you know, breaks out September. Very soon, the Middle East is involved. Uh, you have, you know, you have the Italian threat in North Africa. You have, after France falls, you have the Vichy French threat in Lebanon and in Syria. And Palestine is very important because, again, you have Haifa, the port of Haifa, important to the British. You have, of course, that you know, that very, very important petroleum line, which is in Haifa on the one hand and in the Gulf. Uh, in, on the other hand, in, 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 on the other side, in the east, in in in, um, in Iraq, and uh, so Palestine is important. And uh, from 1940 all the way to 1943, I would say these are the years that uh, the focus, the threat, the Axis threat is very, 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 very uh, major in North Africa and in Palestine. And from 1940, we see. Uh, Chaim Weizmann, who is basically the leader. Ben-Gurion is the, 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 the managing director, if you want, or the leader of the Sochnut, but the actual leader, the world leader of the Zionist organization is Chaim Weizmann. And he proposes to the British very early on, he speaks to the head of SISC, 
Uh, not directly, indirectly, but he's very well known because, you know, he's part of the British establishment in many ways. He has very good connections. As we said, access is important to be f- effective. And he proposes cooperation, much like they had done before in the First World War, but also during the Arab Revolt. And uh, one of the very important, uh, in the, on the intelligence side that he brings up, is that he, he suggests uh, basically leveraging Jewish access in, in the areas that have yet to been captured or conquered by the Germans or the Italians and preparing for, you know, of, you know, of, of operations if that area should be captured by them. Meanwhile, SOE, uh, they start to work in July 1940 based on a uh, directive by Churchill and they establish uh, an operation in Cairo headquarters and they understand, because they have past connections during the, you know, during the 30s, they speak to the Haganah. They speak basically to Davida Cohen, and they speak to a very important man as well, who will be very important with the establishment of the Mossad in the future, the Israeli, security, the Israeli Secret Intelligence Service, Ruven Shiloh. And they suggest to him that they, can, they have men that have been trained. They can use them for sabotage operations in the area in Greece, which is very, very important. And they train them there in, in special operations, specifically maritime insertions and demolitions. So from 1940, we have this cooperation between the Haganah, the special operations executive, and the activity. And they have already a base, an initial base in Tel Aviv, and they are training them there. With the advent of a potential uh, 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 French, Vichy French attack, uh, supported by the Germans from Lebanon, a decision is taken, uh, driven by Churchill, that uh, British forces are required to capture Lebanon. And uh, the the main attack force is Australian, actually. Uh, they, prepare, they, are, they prepare themselves in Palestine, and the, one of the very important things is reconnaissance, is scouting, because they don't, the Australians don't know the land. Of course, there are maps. Um, so one of the very important things is, you know, is how do we reconnoiter the land and how do we make sure the Australians get to the correct uh, uh, attack points? Teams go out with, uh, with the Australian troops to basically lead the way for the main force, which would come during the following day. They leave at night. One of the scouts uh, is Moshe Dayan. He leaves Hanita with his team, and they move to an area just north of the border, a couple of kilometers. And they, um, they advance, and they see the bridge they need to protect and all that, the area. And a firefight breaks out. And uh, that's where he loses his eye. And he's, of course, very famous because he has that eye patch. He loses his eye in that operation. And he's actually recognized as, uh, as a British casualty. And uh, this is considered the, the second operation of the Palmach. And now I will explain why. The Palmach starts in 1941, as I mentioned, Operation Exporter, with this invasion of Lebanon. But before that, two, three months before, the first operation uh, is a demolition operation, maritime demolition. They leave Haifa port, and their job is to blow up a refinery in Tripoli. And they leave in a very small police launch loaded with, with explosives, and they disappear. Uh, they are 23 plus 1. In Hebrew, they are called the 23, the Kaf Gimel. 
But we know there are 24 because they had an SOE liaison officer with them. All hands are lost. And to this day, nobody knows what happened to them. They were lost at sea. That would seem what happened. It seems like maybe the explosives or they basically were sunk. Uh, so this is considered the first operation of the Palmach, and the second one of the British is this one, Operation Exporter, which is very successful, although, as I mentioned, there are casualties. During 1942, Rommel, the threat in the south, basically in North Africa, leads the British to recreate or re-strengthen the Palmach initiative, and they create a very big training base just outside Haifa, which is where all the area is. Uh, this plan is for stay-behind units based on the Palmach, much like they created in, in France or in other countries as well, using local people. They create a big, they created a training establishment, SOE, in Haifa. And the Palmach in '42 are trained to basically fight a potential German invasion of Palestine. That's 1942 to 1943. So, so basically the period leading up to the... Uh, creation of uh, Israel, we basically have lots of people learning intelligence, unconventional warfare, learning how to cooperate with regular forces, learning how to um, strategize, gather information. Yeah, they're, they're basically learn. They're, they're getting their chops before uh, the the state gets the clear. Perfectly correct. I mean, if you want, I mean, we don't. For many years, it was difficult for Israelis, you know, many in the IDF to say, you know, we owe the British something. But the fact is that in many ways, the Second World War and the cooperation, the engagement at the different levels with the British established military establishment and intelligence establishment, you know, gave us our chops, gave us, not gave hands-on experience, very, very important experience with British resources, that special operations on conventional warfare and intelligence warfare, from information warfare all the way through to, you know, actionable direct action. And, uh, and as I mentioned, you know, it's, it's the Haganah helping during the Palmach, it's the interrogations, it's special forces as well. I mean, we have men uh, volunteering for the special air service and the special bait squadron, and they are based in Palestine in 1943. And you have people serving over there that will then afterwards, you know, join the IDF. Um, so you have planners like an architect who's a very high-level member of the Haganah called Ratner. You know, he's even the chief of staff of, for some time of the Haganah, and he's doing planning, strategic planning for the British, who open an office, you know, a school basically in Haifa as well. And so the war, the, the Second World War, is an amazing period of, you know, of, of, of hands-on uh, activity, intelligence and military. And of course, the biggest thing, of course, that in, during 1944 from July on, which is the Jewish Brigade itself, which is, you know, established by, by Churchill, basically, by his director, which, which is able also to create not only a, Germ, uh, a British fighting, Jewish fighting force, but also it has an intelligence capacity as well, field intelligence. And these men, as, of course, would also contribute to the intelligence uh, of the IDF in 1948 and late into the early 60s. And the Jewish brigade is, is drawn from Jews from Most Palestine? Most of them are from Palestine. They were based on uh, platoons and then companies and then battalions, of then regiment called the Buffs, and they were then put together. And some, of course, left you know, British units around the Middle East. They were organized in North Africa. And from North Africa in '44, they moved to Italy, and from Italy into Austria, and then eventually towards the end of the war, the war was over, they were redeployed to the area in Holland. And that's where they were disbanded. 
So that's so you basically there's a major portion out there of when you look at you know what built the Israeli intelligence community. A lot of it is this cooperation with the British. So that's quite interesting. So there's intelligence skills, there's unconventional warfare skills, and then there's also uh, the Jewish Brigade, which are part of the regular army. So the whole spectrum that you would need to fight a war of independence, some of that skill set is already there. It's difficult to imagine Israel winning in 1948 if those experiences weren't yeah, already that, there. Would, would you agree? Many Israelis fighting in 48, especially like the Palmach, most of them did not join the British formation. They stayed in Palestine in this time. They did not go overseas to fight. Although some left the Palmach and joined British formations. But they would probably say that they were very important than the British experience. I would say it was a, a mix of what the British experience, professionalism of big armies, big formations of you know industrial warfare brought, with the Palmach, uh, Esprit, uh, the Gur, as you want to say, you know, there's this culture of, of partisan, of unconventional, of being maverick a bit, you know, that's the Palmach mixture. And the mixture of the, on the one hand, the convention, the unconventional, was what gave us the military edge. I would say the two other issues also assisted us in 48. One was industrial base, which was brought up during the Second World War, because we, Palestine was the industrial base for the British effort in the Middle East. And also the organization that the Haganah brought, which was very, very important. They basically fielded all these units in 1948 until the idea was stood up in June 48. In this interlude, we will discuss how the Second World War and its aftermath reshaped the international system and the modern Middle East. To start with, the United Nations was formed in 1945 to try to prevent World War III. Secondly, the war meant that probably the most powerful country in Europe up to that point, Germany, was divided into zones of occupation by the British, Americans, French and Soviets. Europe as a whole, meanwhile, was divided into East and West by the Iron Curtain. We also see the sometimes immediate and sometimes slow-burning end of the European empires around the world, especially in Asia and Africa. This is evidenced by the growth in the number of states in the UN, from 51 founding members to around 193 members today. In the Middle East, the British, French and Italian empires were broken by the war, which would lead to independence, eventually at least, from Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, Libya, Egypt, Jordan, Lebanon, Syria and Iraq. In 1948, just as the Cold War was beginning, Israel declared its independence, which led to its newly independent Arab neighbours mobilising against it. A turn of events that has still not been fully resolved to this day. With structural changes in the global economy, the rise of the automobile, the importance of mechanised warfare, air travel, for example, the importance of oil to the global system meant that the Middle East was much more important now strategically than it had ever been before. This was especially true for the two superpowers that arose from the ashes of the war, the US and the USSR. Tanks, planes, submarines and aircraft carriers all need this precious commodity, which meant the region became a battleground for influence, with the Arab-Israeli conflict embedded within this struggle. The Cold War would, to some extent, put a straitjacket on major structural geopolitical shifts, the risk of World War III and mutually assured destruction was just too great, when you look at it like this, it almost seems, how could it have been otherwise? But as we all know, it really, really could. 
So so let's talk about 1948 then. So this is a, a pivotal moment. This is when Israel comes into existence. This is when, you know, we, the, the, this is the 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 uh, the creation of everything that, that follows afterwards. So tell us a little bit about that through the lens of intelligence and these structures and, and skill sets that are already in place. So following the decision, uh, the United Nations decision in uh, in November, uh, basically civil war breaks out in Palestine. The British are still here. They are here until May of forty eight, but they are basically disengaging and they are more interested in making sure their forces are protected. So they are focused on force protection. And so they were p- pulling back all the time, basically towards the Haifa, which is the basic, that is their way out, the extraction point, that's the harbor. And at the same time, you have the Jewish uh, communities, the ones on, you know, on the borderlines, they are basically under threat from the Arabs, which they refuse to accept the partition plan. And very soon, in the beginning of '48, there's an influx also of something of Arab volunteers, which is called the Arab Liberation Force, led by led by many Arabs, but one of the most more famous ones is a man called Kaugji in the north, and around uh, Jerusalem, a man called Abdel Kader Husseini. And it's this is the time of you know of, of community warfare. Uh, the Haganah are spread very, very thin. The biggest issue now is, you know, of convoy protection, and there's just not enough troops for that. Also, people have, you know, are working. There isn't, a, there isn't a state. The British are still here. You can't, you can't really go out with weapons and organize attacks because the British won't allow it. And the biggest intelligence threat now is this question of terrorist attacks, protection of convoys, uh, trying to see who is who is in a village is going to attack you, which village is basically not interested in attacking you. And so it becomes this question of, of neighbor neighborhood intelligence, which they're not quite good at because they've been doing this for many, many years. But the problem with neighborhood intelligence or human terrain intelligence like that is that you actually have to do something about it. It's not enough to know what's going on. You have to actually do something. And the question, you could say there's, a, there's this tension between we can talk to our neighbors, our Arab neighbors, and keep it quiet, to the younger men, uh, the Palmach people, you could say, but not only who say, no, I'm sorry, we can't rely on them. They're not going to, they, you, know, you can't talk them out of it. They're going to attack us because people are dying. I mean, the convoys are happening. And of course, with that, you have the influx of the volunteers from Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, and Jordan. And this brings us to this, this pivotal point where the intelligence of the Haganah is not prepared for high-intensity conflict, for a war. They are more like a local intelligence or special operations. They are not prepared for, you know, what we call now our intelligence preparation of the battlefield. And this is where the, the men, basically, that have served with British intelligence bring the expertise of creating a battle map, of creating collection of, of true industrial warfare because they have the experience. And so you find more and more of these ex-British-serving uh, Jewish men and some women, of course, filling these positions from 1948 all the way to the early 60s. Uh, one of the more well-known ones, there are many, but one of them is, is a man called Gihon. Uh, he served as a, as a warrant officer, as a sergeant in the British Brigade, as an intelligence uh, non-commissioned officer. He's an archaeologist, and he will lead uh, the Israeli Defense Intelligence's research branch from 1949-50 
until the early uh, middle of the 50s. So he starts in Jerusalem, and you have others as well. So this is this train, this point, which is basically finalized by Ben-Gurion. The state, of course, you know, is, is, is in May, but he makes a decision in June, and he says, from now on, we have three different kinds of intelligence functions. We have military intelligence, we have the Shin Bet, which is uh, internal, uh, the internal intelligence or internal security, uh, or Shabak, which is like the MI5, or the security service in Britain, or, or like the FBI in, in the States. And you have the external intelligence, which is then coordinated or basically uh, organized by the Foreign Office, much like the Secret Intelligence Service or the MI6 in Britain is. Uh, it's not like the CIA. And you have these three from June, basically, are split up in June 1948, one is military intelligence or Israel defense intelligence, one is the Shin Bet, and one is external intelligence. And during the war basically shifts from the communities fighting each other to fighting intervention from Arab volunteers to state on state with the invasion of the Arab military states in May 1948. There's five armies that the attack Israel, is that yes, correct? Yes, so you have course, Lebanon is a limited limited penetration. They don't do very much. They have a very limited military as well. The Syrians are actually quite successful. Uh, they are able to take quite a bit of ground around uh, what we call the panhandle of Israel in northern Israel. And that area will actually, some of it will stay demilitarized until 1967. Uh, the Jordanian uh, Arab Legion, which some of it is officered by British officers as well, they uh, take Jerusalem and what is today uh, called the West Bank. In many ways, some people say there was collusion with King Hussein and uh, our side, the, the Jewish side, because he basically did not go more than the partition borders themselves. Um, the Iraqis as well supported uh, with their support. And the Egyptians, of course, uh, the Egyptian army and also the Muslim Brotherhood, which we heard a lot about during the Arab Spring. But they also were involved. So yes, you have five plus armies invading at the same time, which would be the main threat that the IDI and the IDF would deal with up until the 70s. Mm-hmm. And just briefly, we hear about a man for Israeli uh, military intelligence. What what does a man so, mean? So in June 48, they decide to, because you know, the establishment of the state, they start what is then called uh, military intelligence or Maman, really, that's in, that is basically in March 49, they call it the Intelligence Department of the IDFGHQ, much like the British, where the intelligence is subordinate to the ops. In, um, in December 1953, Aman is established. Aman is the intelligence core. It's totally independent uh, core of the IDFGHQ. And Aman is Agafa Modin, which is the intelligence core. A bad translation is the intelligence branch, but it's the intelligence core, the intelligence formation. And that is what we know as the IDI, or Israel Defense Intelligence, but many people know it as Aman as well. And that has been since December 1953, where the intelligence is next to the operations, but not subordinate to them, which is quite unique to Israel, not only. But it was definitely a step away from the British model that we had used up until then. And this brings us to the 50s again, which now we have, where basically Israel has been successful in protecting itself. National survival is basically guaranteed against that, that invasion of the Arab armies. 
And uh, the 50s, of course, is a time of Cold War, which is the, the next big change for Israel defense intelligence or the Israeli intelligence community. And, and uh, just very briefly, what does the Mossad, the so Mossad, the Mossad mean? Uh, basically means the institute. The Mossad is an institute. The yes. institute. And it, it's basically okay. the name for the Mossad is, is, the, is the Central Institute for Intelligence and Security. That's what the Mossad is. But they, the first word is the Mossad. That's the one that everybody knows. You don't hear the, the long, long word that they have there. And there is no acronym for Mossad. It's just Mossad. In Hebrew as well, by the way. Very briefly again, what's the difference between Shin Bet and Shabak? I know they're both used interchangeably. Yana, the Shabak and the Shirut, it's the same, or Shirut or Shin Bet. For many years, it was Shin Bet. Shin Bet, the acronym of the, the, of the Shabak, which is the General Security Service, is Shin Bet Kaf, which is Shin Bet Kaf. So in, when you say Shin Bet Kaf in English, it comes out Shabak. But when you say Shin Bet, it's just the first two letters of the acronym, but it's the General Security okay, Service. Yeah. So if, you say to you, if I was to say to somebody Shin Bet or Shabbat, it's the same thing. And many people in Hebrew will probably know it as the Shirut, which is the service, much like the Mossad. It's, you know, they're, trying to be, they're trying to be the same there. So we get to the 50s, we've got the, we've got the Cold War, which is, is playing a big role here. Uh, we've got 1956. I don't think we've got a lot of time to go into this, um, but 1956, uh, just very briefly, we have the the British and French uh, and the Israelis um, basically react to the nationalization of the Suez Canal by Nasser. The Soviet Union and the Americans get involved. The Americans basically get the the British to stand down. I think just briefly, if you could tell us, like, is this a formative experience for Israeli intelligence or or not particularly? No, I think it was. I think it was important. It, it also says something about a sense of insecurity that you know that national survival piece I spoke about. Until, because uh, Ben Gurion did not want to do it, go it alone against the Egyptians. It was just following a massive arms deal. Uh, the Soviet bloc had supplied uh, Nasser with arms. And, uh, of course, the British and the French were not happy with Nasser at all, as you mentioned. Not only the Suez Canal, but North Africa as well, in, you know, impinging on French interests. So there was collusion, as we say, and there was conspiracy. But at, you know, at the professional side, there was intelligence cooperation between the three of them. Um, and, yes, it was... In many ways, it was not so much an intelligence achievement, but the one of cooperation was led by the intelligence community, specifically the Israeli defense intelligence. I'd like to just mention that before that, the operation is known as, you know, as Musketeer, the one in, in, in Suez. But just before that, in February of 56, uh, Israeli intelligence have a, I think it's the first time they put on the map, as they say, because they were able to uh, um, access uh, Soviet uh, Russia or the Soviet Union, uh, Khrushchev, uh, the Khrushchev speech, where he basically uh, denounces Stalin for his crimes at the 20th meeting of the Soviet Communist Party. And the Mossad, actually the Shabak in Warsaw, are able to put their, get their hands on the speech, on the transcript. It was a secret speech, of course. And they're able to get their hands on it because... Uh, you know, a Jewish uh, journalist in Moscow, uh, man named Viktor Graevsky, is able to get this copy using his charms and access, and they they are able to copy it, get it to Tel Aviv, 
and given to the CIA. And this is probably one of the first big, big coups of the Mossad slash Shabak, which shows the CIA and the community itself that, you know, the, that the Mossad have access into behind the Iron Curtain there. And that, of course, leads to an elaborating, elaborated cooperation between those two communities up until today. Uh, so that brings us to 56, of course, where, you know, the, the U.S. basically lean on the French, the British and the Israelis to pull back. And that, that ends basically badly military, but strategically it's considered quite successful for the Israeli community. Um, during the 50s, the late 50s, and all the way up until about 60, the big issue, again, is preparation for that war. Um the most important event happens in February 1960. It's called, uh, the name is Rotem in Hebrew. It's the name of a, of a plant, really. But it's an, it's an early warning failure. What happens is that uh, Nasser moves troops into the Sinai, and the Israeli intelligence misses it completely. Uh, Yitzhak Rabin, the future prime minister, uh, he's at a cocktail party in Tel Aviv, and he meets... Uh, He's head of operations then at the general headquarters, and he meets uh, a diplomat who mentions it to him. And he suddenly understands that we have missed something very, very important. He rushes back, and he says, we've been caught with our pants down. And uh, But nothing happens. That that operation ends. Nasser takes the troops, takes them out, and all that. Some people, there are different reasons for why he did that. But that leads the Israeli intelligence uh, community to understand that they have a big problem with early warning. And what was up until then, based on some area reconnaissance, a lot of you mint, they understand it's not enough. And this is where Sayyid Matkal started special operations, special insertions, to create that ability of, of strategic early warning uh, in the depth of the enemy countries, which would, would lead all the way up until the late 70s. And that also leads to the change at the top of the Israeli intelligence community, where sort of the younger men uh, now take command. Uh, not the ones who would uh, run the intelligence during the pre-state and the early state, but the younger men who had served in the military, and uh, they start taking command. And this is also a time where a sort of shift in intelligence cultures from European, British, and French to more American industrial management, and, of course, a big, big emphasis on technology, specifically signals intelligence. So we've came through the War of Independence, we've came through this formative experience, uh, 1956, 1960, Sire Matt Cal, uh, then we get up into the, the 1960s proper, so um, we get the shift from the, the French and the British to uh, the Americans, and then we get up to 1967, which is really fascinating, so the Six-Day War, uh, just tell our listeners briefly what that was and why it matters for the Israeli intelligence community. So the big thing about the Six-Day War, of course, is that you know, nobody wants war. In fact, just, just previous, prior to the war, the head of intelligence of the Israel Defense Intelligence says there will not be war because Nasser is, you know, is bogged down in the Yemen and other places, and uh, he's not going to go to war. But uh, he moves he moves his troops into Sinai and and he shuts down uh, maritime uh, the maritime the Straits of Tehran, which is Israel's way out from Eilat, that port in the south to the east. And um, basically, there is coordination, there is dialogue with the, with the Americans, and it's understood that we have that Israel has a, a green light 
to to preempt. And this the the preemption starts with a very very precision strike called Moked, which means focus. It's an air it's an aircraft uh, air armada strike uh, on uh, the Egyptian air force, which basically takes them out in a matter of hours. And the Egypt and the Syrians and then the Jordanians and then the Iraqis. The Lebanese air force is not that important. They also struck a bit, but they are not the issue. But this is a result of two things that happened in the 60s. First, the very big investment in SIGINT, in signals intelligence, which allows the Israeli Air Force and Israeli Defense Intelligence to understand the routine of air operations in the countries and understand when their aircraft will be on the ground, so they can be struck, that's early morning. So that allows them to do that and to have a very good hands-on access to that. Uh, it also dovetails with the Sayyid Matkal uh, operations that they have done to prepare the battlefield as well. And it also rests on very good high-access, long-term uh, human uh, insertions into these countries. So like the most famous one and also tragic is Eli Cohen, uh, a long-term penetration agent into Syria, who is caught and hung by the Syrians. He, uh, he's, he starts his operations in, in, in 62 and he's, he's caught in 65, in January 65. And in, in Egypt, a well-known one is also it's been spoken about a lot and published is a man named Wolfgang Lotz and his Hebrew name is Zeev Gurarieh and he's a German Jew. Eli Cohen is a, he's an Egyptian Jew, but he's a German Jew, Wolfgang Lotz, and he's inserted from the sixth from 60 till February 65 into the Cairo elite, and he's able to correct information over there. And he's caught as well. He's caught a month after Eli Cohen, apparently by the same radio direction uh, finding uh, machines that the Soviets, uh, Russians had supplied, the Syrians had supplied to the Egyptians, and he's caught. But the mixture of technology and human access allows or enables the Israeli Air Force to strike precisely and surgically, take out the air force of those two countries, specifically Egypt. And that's what enables the ground attack to take to be so successful and to end the war in six days. At the end of six days, the whole of Sinai up to the Suez Canal is in the hands of the IDF. The Golan Heights, the Syrian border, is in the hands of the IDF. And all what today we call the West Bank, Judea and Samaria, up until the Jordan River, the Jordanian with the Kingdom of Jordan is in the hands of the IDF. So Israel's like more than double the size in six days. Very successful. Of course, many people were, were killed. It's not, it was not casualty free, but the military success. And this is the height, you could say, of, of industrial intelligence as well. This mixture of human, of technology, and of, and human, uh, human and the uh, of technology and and of course, uh, human capability. So you have this phenomenally successful six-day war, although have you say, uh, as you say, it's not casualty-free. And then we have the Yom Kippur War in 1973. We are doing a whole episode on this, so we don't need to go too into it, but it is a pivotal moment. If you can just tell listeners what happened and, and why it matters for Israeli intelligence. Sure. So coming out, of, coming out of the six-day war, Israeli intelligence community, but specifically Israeli defense intelligence, are exhilarated. You know, they've been very successful, although no one wants to mention the fact that, you know, before the war they said there wouldn't be a war as far as they were concerned. Their appreciation was there would not be a war. 
But as far as, you know, intelligence preparation of battlefield and operational intelligence, it's highly successful. And at this time, basically, the head of military intelligence is replaced as well. You know, the man who was very successful, he leaves, is replaced by um, a new commander, a new general, who had uh, also served, by the way, as the Israeli defense attaché in Washington. And he takes over. He had been in previously a head of collection for the Israeli Defense Intelligence, and he'd also been the attaché. And this feeling of that uh, we've been very, very successful and we are very, very good at our job more than likely impacts what happens in 73. This feeling of, you know, we know what we're doing, we are confident, and you can't tell us anything kind of thing. Uh, also, I, I, there was, this is like, you know, this is a national trauma, 73, and definitely an intelligence trauma up until when I was even serving, which was not so long ago. This feeling of that we are much better than everybody else, this, this feeling of supremacy. So on the one hand, you have fairly good or very good human intelligence, which I'll get to in a second, as you saw, in 67, but it continues in 73, such like, and this has all been published, so like a man called Ashraf Marwan, who is very, very close to the Egyptian prime minister, and he's giving early warning, the angel, you'll speak about that in your other podcast, but he's, you know, he's high access, he's very, very, he's an Israeli, a high-level penetration agent, and this question, you know, who is he working for kind of thing, but, you know, he's definitely giving information, and he gives the information about the attack, about the offensive plan. You have very good intelligence, SIGINT intelligence access as well, which again you speak about on the Sayat Matkal podcast and all that, but this is very important as well. And you also have, you know, you have very good like aerial photography as well, you know, with, with aircraft, as much as they can fly, because the, the problem at the end of the, the early 70s after the Six-Day War is that the Egyptians had moved their sand batteries to the Suez Canal, which make it difficult, but they were still taking pictures. So you have that as well. And you had good tactical in collection as well. So the, the picture itself was, it's never clear, but it was a high-resolution res picture. And uh, you had good access. But, uh, and you'll get to that in a podcast, for different reasons, at the end of the day, it was a, a national failure of decision at the national level, but definitely an intelligence misconception. It's not, in Israel, the, the big thing about the 73 war has always been the intelligence failure. Undoubtedly, there was intelligence failure there. But it also was because the leadership in many ways believed you know, too much of what they were told or they chose to believe what they believed. Which in the end of the day, there was good information out there. It was so difficult to just change. There were people that said, you know, it's not an exercise. This is not routine. This is very strange and all that. But it just could not break the silence around that, that this is not war, this is an exercise. And that leads us to the terrible events of October 73, where both, both the militaries, Syria and Egypt, surprise us. No, no Jordanian involvement during the war. He, he sits it out, Queen Hussein. In 67, he made a mistake. He, he said that as, as much, that he did get involved. I didn't mention it, but in 67, there's a very, very important pivotal moment in Sigint where Nasser and Hussein have this conversation that Israeli intelligence pick up and they publish the conversation and they basically they try and create a story that says that the American aircraft carriers are helping the Israelis and they are the ones responsible for this, the success of the ID, IDF 
but the Israeli uh, intelligence and the government make a decision, they publish it in the fourth day of the war. It not only embarrasses Hussein, it terribly embarrasses Nasser, and uh, subsequently in 70, he will, he will pass away and he will then be replaced by Sadat, and he will lead the successful, in their mind, attack of 1973. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're going to come on to discuss that in a separate podcast, but I think just to sum it up, um, Israel's surprise on points, it looks almost uh, existential. There's certain actions that uh, push the Syrians and the Egyptians back. Then it looks as if the Israelis are ready to destroy uh, an Egyptian army and the Soviets come in and, and say that they're not going to let that happen and the, the Americans get the Israelis to not do that. And it becomes this whole international incident as well as the localised picture. So so we have this and it's an intelligence trauma and failure that's still discussed to this day. And, and is that for this special series, it's going to be the 50th anniversary of that war. So we get to the end of that war. We have this resetting and in that podcast we speak speak about the the institutional effects the changes that are made as a result of this um and then let's just skip forward because we don't have time to go into southern lebanon and and the two intifadas and so forth um but let's just walk up to the present day so where are we now with israeli intelligence we've discussed where it came from we've discussed the creation of the state we've discussed several formative experiences. Uh, we get up to the present day. Where are we now? Tell us about the role of technology. Tell us some of the major uh, reforms or priority shifts and so forth. Just give us a, like a diagnosis or annual physical test on where Israeli intelligence is at the moment. I think you're very right in saying. So we went, the big thing now is two pivotal changes. First of all, in the landscape, you know, in the, in the strategic landscape. The first one, of course, is you can't ignore that happens after all of this, but, you know, you, uh, the demise, as they say, of the Soviet Union changes a lot. We won't go into that, but it does change priorities. It also changes the position, you know, of, of, of Israel in many ways and in the Middle East. And then, of course, you have the whole, this whole thing about the Gulf. But before that, 1988, August 1988, is very, very important because it ends the Iraq-Iran war. And at the end of the Iraq-Iran war, we did not mention, of course, but in 1979, there's a revolution in Iran, and you know the Shah is deposed, and you have a whole, you have a whole new, a whole new situation in Iran, which of course impacts not only the Gulf but the Middle East as a whole. And at the end of the Gulf, the end of the Iran-Iraq war in, in August '88, Iran comes out of that. Uh, I'm not going to say stronger, but they don't have this war. They have uh, a new generation of revolutionary, hardened, battle-hardened men, and uh, they have a vision. And so one of the biggest changes from Israel 1909 even to the late 80s or 90s is Iran. Because up until 79, Iran is not really a threat to Israel. In fact, in many years, for many years, Israel and Iran are in sort of a semi-cooperation. And from 79, that changes, but it changes dramatically in 1988. And that is probably the biggest thing that everybody's dealing with today. You know, how do you engage with Iran? And they have their vision. They have, you know, they have their interests, of course. And, and that is one of the biggest things we're dealing with today. The second thing is that the change also in what the people of the Middle East are dealing with. And we don't have time to talk about the Arab Spring. 
But the Arab Spring you know, creates a new energy which brings down uh, states all around us, from the Egyptians, Bashar al-Assad as well, of course, is still dealing with it. As we speak, he has issues in the south again, you know, in Dara and Sweda. So he's not finished with that. And that brought the Russians, you know, Putin's Russia into, into Syria. And of course, the Iranians, of course, the biggest thing is not only in Lebanon with Lebanese Hezbollah, which suddenly now we are dealing with the Shiites for many years. There was no issue from Lebanon, as we spoke about, you know, it's like the half army, not even half. They were not an issue. But Lebanon has become a major issue in the last couple of years because they are so supported by Iran, not only the vision and the resources, but the capabilities as well. And now we see with the Ukraine, the war in Ukraine, this, this, this issue of Iran and Russia, which of course impacts the priorities of Israeli defense intelligence and Israeli uh, defense forces as a whole and the whole community. So those two issues, the first issue is Iran impacting, and the second one, what it does to our even our close neighborhood like Lebanon, that's important. The second thing is that the Arab Spring also does something else. It brings down leaders. So for many years, Israeli intelligence was focused on understanding leaders. You know, dictatorship is, is you know, it's, it's professionally, it's really, it's, a, it's an access problem because once you know what the dictator is going to do, it makes intelligence uh, equation easier to solve. Uh, there are still difficulties out there, but once you can even speak to that man or access that man, normally a man, not a woman, unfortunately, it's easier. Today, the question of popular sentiment and popular self-organization is very, very important. And that's changed a lot as well. And with that, you have something else. We see not only in Iran, but also in the, amongst, which is Shiite, but amongst the Sunnah, this question of religion. Um, this question of religion is very, very important, even when, when you talk about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which in the past was more nationalistic, I don't want to say it was without religion, it was always there, but now it's become very central to the discussion and the solution, if there is one. It's this question of, you know, of, of, of religious uh, conflict or not conflict. Specifically for the Palestinians, it's this question of Hamas, which now has changed a lot of the equation because it's not secular Fatah anymore or PLO, it's, it's, it's something else. So those two issues out there are connected to the changing in priorities. Yeah, so the, the, it's, it's really fascinating. So there's so much things that have changed. So the dissolution of the Soviet Union, that changes the strategic picture. We have uh, the peace treaty with Egypt and, and Jordan. So um, it's not necessarily nation state to nation state in the sense of those two countries. But then we have uh, the Iranian Revolution, uh, the funding for Hezbollah. Uh, so we move from the south and the east to the north uh, as being one of the main places the security threats are going to come from. So so there's a kind of changing of the picture um, in terms of Israel, what Israeli intelligence has to focus on. I think that's that's quite fascinating. It's like in many ways everything's been stretched. Because in the past, the focus was border plus, and now it's become very much the global picture, that the global impact is enormous, but also the threats themselves, the local ones are also somehow connected, not only because of the virtual connections, but because of this question of ideology are connected all over. This brings us to this, this last little, this, this quote that I always mention, is that like in many ways, Israel... Uh, 
conflict or Israel's uh, in a quest for survival or whatever you want to call it. It's like, um, and now I'm sort of paraphrasing uh, Friedman, Thomas Friedman. It's sort of like off Broadway. You know, we what happens? Yeah, it's like off Broadway. Now we off what happens? And then you say it's off Broadway. We'll come to Broadway. And, you know, it's very very nice story that he writes about in one of his articles. You know, that this is off Broadway. It's not only Israel. We we like at the front, of course. We get it first, maybe because we're sort of in the neck of the woods here, where all these things mix up. But uh, this will probably, you know, it's sort of like a trailer of things to come, where you see this mixture of, you know, of of, of uh, conflicting ideologies, but also the way that things stretch and are very, very important. And to that, you can of course add this question of technology. Mm-hmm. Really, really fascinating, and I could speak for hours. I wish we had, I wish we had more time, but this has been fantastic. Thanks for listening to this episode of Spycast. Please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up on next week's show. To sit in front of an arms dealer, of Iranian arms leader with some clergy sitting in front of you and refusing to look you in the eye. He simply lowered his eyes to show his disdain for me while his military personnel at the side did the bargaining on specific weapon systems that they wanted. If you have feedback, you can reach us by email at spycast at spymuseum.org or on Twitter at INTL Spycast. If you go to our page at thecyberwire.com slash podcast slash spycast, you can find links to further resources, detailed show notes and full transcripts. I'm your host, Andrew Hammond, and my podcast content partner is Erin Dietrich. The rest of the team involved in the show is Mike Mincy, Memphis Von III, Emily Coletta, Emily Renz, Afua Anokwa, Ariel Samuel, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester and Jen Iben. This show is brought to you from the home of the world's preeminent collection of intelligence and espionage-related artefacts, the International Spy Museum. <laughs> <laughs>